Hey, 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 and welcome to Insurance Town. I'm the Mayor Heath Sheeran and the host of this podcast. Guys, I'm super pumped about today's show. Today's show is sponsored by Canopy Connect. My man Tolga over there has created an incredible process. This is your one-click solution to getting those deck pages. You need to quote a prospect. This is something you've got to get into. Go to app.usecanopy.com backslash Heath. Get your discount. Check it out. Get a demo. Do the whole thing. You're going to love it. Everybody, I mean everybody that has gotten into it, that has come from my show, has texted me, emailed me, and told me how thankful they were and how much they love it and how much it's changed the game for their agency. You got to check it out. Today, 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 I've got my man Matt Namoli on the show. Yes, the Matt Namoli, the co-founder of GNN Insurance. He grew up from zero to five plus million in revenue in nine years, sold it in 2019, co-founded Babylon and helped 60 plus agencies implement a system of organization and accountability. He's a speaker. He's a vlogger. He's a podcast host. He's the man. And and I love talking to him and we get, uh, we get caught up. Sometimes we forget (laughs) how long we were recording. So uh, I can't wait for you to hear it. It's awesome. Sit back Relax and enjoy my conversation with my man, Matt Namoli. Matt Namoli, what's happening, my brother? Man, I am so excited for today. Dude, I am too. We've been talking about it a little bit. It's gotten me excited and our emails back and forth. Uh, what's the weather like where you're at, by the way? Um, you know what, Heath, that's not like typically the opening line you want to ask someone in New England in uh, January, like to get to well, warm up, you know? I, but right now it's like 30 degrees, uh, pretty bright, pretty bright, no snow on the ground. So we're in a good spot. Dude, I, I, the only reason I asked that is because we actually have snow on the ground in Arkansas right now. So I'm pretty excited about it. We don't ever get snow. And so I, I was walking the dog this morning. I caught snow flurries like, holy smokes. That's great. I was on a call this morning with a woman who is in Austin, Texas. And yeah. And she said that I heard her kids in the background. I was like, ah, tough day. She was like, yeah, I mean, we had to keep them home from school because it, it, there were snow flurries last night. And of course, it's like, it's probably 75 degrees today with nothing, you know, no issue. But <laughs> when you get snow once a decade, they cancel school. Oh, for sure. You get a half an inch of snow here and it's like it, the city shuts down. So, uh, you know, had to. Had to ask just because I thought maybe we could relate if you had snow. And I'm like, yeah, we do too, but whatever. Hey, well, what we can relate on is the fact that, A, I, know, I now know you're a Red Sox fan, right? And yes. That's, that's easy. You're already a really good friend. I almost feel like a brother. And two, we both are wearing headsets. Like we're not, we're not, we're not joking around. We don't have no. like, you know, we're speaking through the computer. I got a microphone. You got a microphone. We got headsets. We're, we're came ready to rock. Dude, we are ready. And I even got two cameras going. I might even switch them back and forth just to be cool guy. Wait, but, do you have both my sides or is it no, the cameras dude, on both you look, sides? You look, you look great on all sides, my brother. <laughs> that, beard is, that beard is fierce, bro. I like it. Same to you. Same to you. All righty. Now that, you know, we've chit-chatted a little bit, I want my audience to hear, kind of go down memory lane with me, and uh, let's talk about your past. Let's go mm. through it uh, as far back as you want. Let's talk. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think I, I've told, I tried to tell my story a few times, and again, it, it edits and, and updates as the years go by um, in, in the hopes that, you know, people can learn from my mistakes. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, you you hope as an entrepreneur, a leader, a business owner, you know, you, you I know very little, but the stuff I do know, it's because I've made a lot of mistakes. And over the time, uh, you know, you hope to pass that on to others. And so I appreciate you having me on just as a preface to share anything. And if there's a nugget of value someone gets, I'll be jazzed up. But um, I guess I'll start. I mean, I, I was in college at UVM, University of Vermont. Uh, parents were Peace Corps volunteer background, CDC uh, health workers their whole life. I lived overseas in Africa. And so I was so far away from insurance as an option for the future. I mean, as far away as you can get. Um, but my senior year came around and I needed an internship because uh, I just knew that that would help me with finding a job after college. 
And uh, Liberty Mutual was offering a, a paid $19 an hour, which at the time felt like a millionaire, internship uh, in Williston, Vermont. I was able to get 10 hours a week there as a sales uh, intern while playing baseball and finding time in between to do some work. Um, and I had a good experience right off the bat with them. And so they extended an offer to, for me to be a sales agent, personal line sales agent at Liberty in Framingham, Massachusetts, just about a half hour west of Boston. And so I took that job and uh, my number, I mean, you know, kind of your typical sales personal lines job where you, you better you network, better you market, the more hours you work, the more phone calls you make. And if you have a little bit of skill, you can do pretty well. And uh, I, I had some good success there early on just because I outworked a lot of other people, not because I was that good. Uh, but my number one competitor across the country was Zach Gould, who was a sales agent for Liberty out of Boston. And so we met each other a couple of times. Our, our managers obviously pitted us against each other, uh, telling, telling each one of us that the other was the devil. And uh, just to kind of create that competition, we finally met and we're like, wow, we both love Seinfeld. We both love golf and uh, we love sports in general. So we said, you know, we became friends and, and uh, you know, lo and behold, we both had the same dream of kind of being entrepreneurs. And so three years at Liberty and we both decided to jump ship and start our own independent agency at the time it was GNN Insurance. Um, we started the agency in 2010, early 2010. And, you know, I won't go, I can go into more detail if you want, but we basically, the next nine years really um, just kind of continued to grow the business, not just in sheer number of policies and premium and relationships, but also just as business owners trying to figure out how to become better business owners, better leaders, better managers, uh, ultimately leading us to starting our own our own consulting business, uh, Bob Alon, and we coached about 70 agencies across the country over two years. Um, and then most recently, a year ago, we found the right partner to purchase GNN, uh, and we transitioned some of our equity into the new buyer, the Hill Group. In November of 2019, we sold the agency. We still run the agency and still manage all the same people, a lot of the same missions and vision for the future. But uh, we decided that we needed a partner to level up to take it to a whole nother level. So um, that's kind of in a nutshell, the, 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 the journey in the insurance space for us uh, over the last 10 years. Wow. So talk to me then if you, okay, you started it and then like you said, you sold it. So you must have grown pretty quickly for them to want to purchase that agency. Uh, what, can you talk to me about that a little bit and what, what that looked like for you? Yeah. So early on, we had no other option, but to grow as a lot of like startup scratch agency owners know, uh, you know, you don't, you don't sell, you don't create some, some premium. Uh, you don't really have a business and you can't put food on the table. So for us, you know, early on, we decided that we were going to be C minus at probably everything, but creating leads and converting them into clients. So early on, we decided that, you know, just focusing on uh, lead generation, top of the funnel and creating sales was really what we were going to master. And so that's all we did really for the first two years. And so we kind of failed in a lot of other categories, areas, and that, you know, temporarily hurt us, but revenue does solve uh, for those problems. And it, it bought us time to learn how to run a business. And ultimately we, you know, became better business owners and strategists, uh, leaders and managers built up a good team because we had that time. Uh, and I think a lot of agencies owners that I speak to, you know, there's hundreds of issues we all deal with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But if you can agree uh, that you'll never allow lead generation and sales to be the major issue that you're dealing with, I think you, uh, you kind of buy yourself that time. So yeah, we grew. I mean, we we went from zero employees in nine years. We got to thirty five employees plus virtual assistants. Um, you know, we just about five million, a little over five million in revenue. And uh, the speed at which we were growing was anywhere between twenty to forty percent year over year. And so for the potential buyers, yeah, we're a much different category than what they're typically looking for, right? They're typically looking for and at agencies that are uh, a little bit more tenured, uh, maybe generational, uh, maybe not growing as fast organically, but have a great book of business loss ratios, niches, et cetera. Yeah. And so what do you think uh, was something for, for, for you guys, I guess, that, that helped you to make you different from any other agency where you were? What were you doing differently to grow at such a rapid pace. And uh, what was that for you? Yeah. Well, 
we, one year in, we evaluated where all business was coming from because it was coming from all over the place. Every potential lead source, BNI networking groups, friends, family, uh, dealerships, all kinds of stuff. Um, we would write roofers that came off the street, you know, it was not a good idea, but we do, we do literally everything. And obviously not all leads are created equal. Not all clients are created equal from a quality standpoint. And so we quickly determined after a year that when we were referred clients by mortgage brokers and realtors, it really was uh, ideal. We closed much higher clip. Those clients would be happy and would refer friends and family. We'd write more policies, 1.8 to 2.2 policies per client. Uh, we typically write the umbrella that would be a sticky client with good loss history. And so that was the business that we realized was the best business. And so, you know, after a year, we just said, we're going to screw any other, you know, method of getting business, shrink our pond to just home buyers and go all in. Now, I think a lot of personal lines focus agencies across the country have done that in the last five years to kind of realize that that is something that, you know, is a good opportunity. I think we did it a little bit earlier than, than most and, uh, we went all in on the networking strategy. So we really tried to elevate to the point where all we were doing those first few years was networking and sales and anything else that would fall to our plate, we would hire for. Um, and we, you know, we, the delayed gratification model is very much the case in this industry. And we, uh, we pushed that to the max because any dollar we could take as income is also a do- another dollar that another employee could take time and, and resources off our plate. So um, you know, we really rein- reinvested in the business, which allowed us to kind of continue to grow heavily in that niche, which was home buyers. And so that networking, was that done? I know you mentioned BNI earlier, but was that done more focused 100% on lenders, 100% on lenders and realtors? I know mortgage, you know, the lenders are the ones who control the business the most, but did you have a focus on, on both or st- typically lenders? You know, Lenders would refer a majority of the business to us, but we realized that we were much more attractive to potential lenders and existing relationships that were loan officers if we were heavily networked with realtors. So I'd say that we did an equal amount of networking with realtors and lenders because if you meet a realtor that isn't with uh, already with a lender, you know, as a team or as a trusted advisor, then we could make that introduction. And if you found someone who loved their lender and would never leave them, well, that, that would be a great quality introduction upstream and any loan officer is going to take an introduction by a realtor. So it was about half and half. And I think strategically, that was a good decision. Um, the, le- the realtor networking wasn't for necessarily their leads. It was for their relationships. So you were, re- you were referring realtors to lenders and lenders to realtors? Yeah. And, and to attorneys and CPAs and financial advisors. So we just kind of old school um, guerrilla marketing, you know, face-to-face, f- screwed up a ton, way more than we won but did it continually, constantly, the compound effect of just continuing to do that was to build up a, a network of a couple hundred in our, in our sphere. And that just grew over time. Um, we, we eventually layered uh, you know, video and social media and you know, everything that we could do to remain top of mind with those, with those partners. Um, if we weren't seeing them face-to-face, we wanted them to remember and think of us uh, you know, if they, if they just turned on Facebook or if they turn on Instagram or they watched the video, we wanted us to pop up so they would think of us when they thought of insurance. And that worked. Uh, it worked to be able to scale networking to a greater level than you could in your traditional one-on-one relationship. Well, wait, so you mean there was video before COVID? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we actually, we were, uh, we actually laughed about this. We were, we were called the Liberty guys for a number of years and because we came from Liberty and within the independent channel, people are just joking. It was like their way of, you know, labeling us. And so early, like two years, three years in, we, we bought ten, you know, $10,000 order, which would, at the time would have been a million dollar injection in the business uh, of bobbleheads. We made custom bobbleheads of uh, a lot of our lending partners, realtors, and anyone else in the industry that we wanted to connect with that we hadn't met or pushed us off. We found their pictures online. We took probably a month to do it. And we actually uh, made all of them into their own bobblehead. And then we delivered them. And, you know, we kind of used that as a brand launch for bobble mania or bobble bobbleheads in general. To date, I mean, we, we haven't made any recently, but to date we've made over 1,200 um, of anyone in that space in New England. And uh, it helped us really kind of brand in a fun way around 
around something not insurance and something that they was only about them. I think I've talked about this for years and a lot of other agencies have kind of adopted. It's funny, we get tons of emails from time to time being like, hey, would it be okay if I bought my referral partner some, some bobbleheads? And I know you guys have done it in the past. It's like, of course, we're not, you know, we didn't, we didn't patent this move. It's something that everyone should be able to do. Uh, but we had a ton of fun with it. We threw a bunch of parties, you know, bobblehead parties for all of our partners and got everyone together. And, uh, and then eventually when we decided to kind of take the video right on, right on social media, we hired a full-time videographer who filmed us on, every single day. And we produced a weekly vlog titled it Bobble On. And that helped us really kind of stay top of mind with our partners. That's crazy. Um, that Okay, so you bought $10,000 of the bobbleheads. And did you make them look like the lenders and the realtors? Or were they your bobblehead? No, it'd be really weird if we bought 10000 of us. <laughs> no, we, we, we found their photos online and we, uh, and we made them out of them, you know, which made it much more personal. Dude. They would get them and give them to their kids and take pictures of them on their car and put them on social. And people would be like, where did you get one? You know, you've truly made it when you're a bobblehead. And they would always tag us. And so it was a good way to kind of create that, that, you know, informal, fun market and brand in that sphere without talking about insurance. Yeah, that is, that's a really unique idea. Uh, and I know a lot of people take the cookies or they'll take brownies or they'll go and do whatever, you know, similar to that. And that can work, and that has been effective over the years, but that's pretty unique in the, in the bobblehead thing. So I think that's super cool. And so, um, you know, I, I'm assuming all this being said, you know, I think you mentioned a little bit of it earlier, but, you know, 100% of your focus in the early days of the agency was personal lines and personal lines only, correct? Yeah, that was the main driver. If we, We'd write some commercial stuff if it came in as a result of referrals. We wouldn't turn it away, but – we didn't focus on networking for and driving in commercial leads. Is there anything else that you guys were doing outside of bobbleheads and then outside of that to continue to grow that business and any other strategy that you were doing as you were bringing on staff and growing this business? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we realized in 2014 that at this like four years of running the business that we could only run so fast. Um, we quickly realized that it doesn't matter whether it's commercial or personal, it didn't matter. I mean, there's only so much premium and number of sales and, and, and policy count that you as the owner can actually sell and produce yourself. And ultimately, there's an inverse relationship, right, between how much you grow and how many headaches and issues that come about from it. And up to that point, we like hired ferociously to just put people in positions to sort of handle the muck and continue to sort of just drive in leads and sales. Um, we knew that we needed a change because I was up at three in the morning sending emails. He'd get up at four in the morning and receive them and give them back just like, because we were, we were so, so slammed with, with everything. We did, that's the reality we created for ourselves. And we were hitting a ceiling that we would not be able to break through all long-term. And so we realized we, we needed to do things different. And we didn't want to give up growth. We never wanted to, and we never have given up growth. And so we said, well, what do we do? And we, we really kind of checked our egos at the door and we looked for a coach. We looked for a consultant, a coach, somebody come in and kind of help support us and make us better business owners because we realized that, you know, we shouldn't have turnover. We should be hiring good people. We should be able to improve the business, not just, you know, had this chaotic machine that, you know, would spit out fires and you have no idea what's going to happen next. Right. And so we, we ended up hiring and, and spent a lot of money investing in ourselves as business owners while, while growing the, the, the agency. Um, and, you know, that really helped us. It went from, you know, just kind of a, a group of 10 or 15 people to a leadership team, uh, defined roles and organizational charts, uh, weekly structured meetings, core values, um, understanding about process, written process design, and how to use it as an accountability tool, scorecard metrics, all the things that, you know, a more tenured, mature business would understand, we all kind of had to learn from scratch. And so, um, you know, I think 14 to 15, we really focused on educating ourselves. And ultimately, that, that led us to being able to kind of elevate out of the role of the producer. It didn't happen right away, but elevate out of the role of the producer into more of a leader manager who focused on visions, you know, key relationships, culture, strategy, which is ultimately what a business needs its 
founders and you know owners to be doing. If they're not doing it, no one is. And if they're involved in the business, the service, the sales, the process, and the ops, then no one's doing what they need to do. And so the more we found, we found that we removed ourselves from the operation with the right tools and strategies to have in place um, to keep the business moving forward and resolve issues as they popped up, the easier it was for us to scale without less with less pain. And so, you know, fast forward two years, we're still growing, if, if at not the same speed, faster year over year. But Zach and I were doing less in the business work and we were much more on the business, which I know everyone in, 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 in any forum or group will say, like, you got to work on the business, that's not a, in it, right? Yeah, that's a real popular thing to say, but it's a matter of, you know, doing it. And that's a, a totally different ballgame. Now, let me ask you this. At what point... Um, I guess at this point, probably when you hired a coach, uh, did you guys, you and your partner stop selling and start referring that business to your clients and things of that nature? Because I find that to be, you know, a model that a lot of the old school agencies listening right now don't want to give up that sales role or they don't want to give up. They want to do everything, so to speak. And I've seen a lot of newer agency owners that they set up a model where, you know, the relationship that they build with the lenders or the network partners, they pass those referrals on to their staff. Yeah. And so they no longer become producers. They're just managing those people. Is that kind of the role you guys did? At what point did you do that? Yes. Uh, it was a, it was a work in progress for over a year for it to finally work, maybe even longer um, to answer your first question. And yes, we did decide we loved selling and no, we believe no one could do it like we could. Right. And so uh, we didn't want to, but we knew the business needed us to. And that was a huge, huge aha moment for us is that the business was eventually going to hit a blockade that we couldn't get through. And if we wanted to stop at a $2 million agency or a $3 million revenue shop, that'd be one. But we wanted to keep growing and we, need, we knew we needed to focus on bigger problems and bigger opportunities. And selling is important. But again, the things that the reasons why people don't want to give up that seat as an owner is they fear one how their referral partners are going to uh, take it right if they're going to continue to refer me if if you know John or Julie is actually handling their clients and two they're concerned that John and Julie won't do it as well as they did and both of those are correct <laughs> like. A, partners and referral partners aren't all going to be happy with this transition. And some of them abandoned. Some of them said, sorry, if you're not going to be working with my clients, I'm not referring. And we was, that was a loss. Other, John and Julie, who were not sales reps for us, but John and Julie, uh, they were an 8 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10 when we believed we were 10 out of 10. Now, we weren't 10 out of 10s, but we took, uh, we accepted that other sales reps were not going to close at the same level and, and be able to issue as many policies as we could with every opportunity. But we knew that in order to continue to move forward, we needed to move and shift to this. So it was an uncomfortable transition. And it was definitely a boomerang effect because, and there was a lag. Sorry, I'm jumping around too many coffees today. But there was a lag yeah, because we, had, we had to hire internally to staff for this. So obviously the payroll went up. We lost some referral partners because they weren't happy with the transition. And we didn't, it's not like we could just turn it on with more referral partners the next day and create more revenue. And even if we did, it took time to be profitable on that. So it was an accepted year of reduced profits uh, by making this change. But it allowed us to train and educate, become better managers, put, set up processes and systems, and really run the business a little bit more intelligently. Um, ultimately, allowed us to get out and network even more than we were in the past. So we were able to replace those those referral partners over time and and generate way more than we were when we were selling. Those sales reps weren't great at the beginning. We only had one to start, then we moved to two, then we moved to three, four, five, and some of them didn't work. Some of them didn't do a great job, partly because of our fault, but some of them just weren't right for the, for the position and we hired improperly. But it bought us time to kind of make the right you know, moves long-term. And I think that's where delayed gratification needs to, needs to really fall in place with agency owners to understand that it's not going to be an overnight you know, shift. And that, but if you are committed for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, then you need to 
you know, dedicate and commit to that, to that infrastructural change. And that, you know, as you talk about this and that uh, deferred gratification, I think that's a, a key that a lot of agency owners don't want to get into. But you mentioned something a minute ago, I'm going to rewind you a minute. You talked about some processes and procedures you put in. Uh, can you, can you dive in and give some of the audience, some of the listeners here, you know, some ideas, what that looks like, what are some of those core processes you put in you know, uh, let's walk, let's walk down the path a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it let all of what we did with GNN led us to have time and resources and opportunity to consult and help agencies across the country implement a, a similar system to what we had implemented internally. And so we believed wholeheartedly in the, 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 the value of systematic organize, organized efficiency and, and, and uh, accountability. And so, and coming back and to like, others were seeing that too. Obviously other people were seeing that too. Other agencies, as you mentioned, now you're running an agency on one side and consulting agencies on the other, which, you know, nowadays it's a little more accepted, but I would imagine 10 years ago or however long ago that was, that was probably an uncommon practice, especially in New England. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think the traditional agency owner is running in the business with the producer hat on and couldn't imagine only working five hours a week on top line strategy, vision people and running meetings. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was, it didn't happen overnight clearly, but got to that point. So I think the, and this comes back around to what you said earlier about delegation, obviously any system uh, of any business that's growing and continues to grow without hitting major roadblocks uh understands the value of delegation, but how to effectively do it um, while also dealing with all the other issues and problems that pop up is, is the challenge. I think a lot of people talk about the need to get out of the business, but how do you actually do it? And so at, it, at its core and the backbone of our business still to today is our weekly structured meeting. And if you're an agency, any business, frankly, it's not insurance specific, that is not running an effective weekly structured meeting with your staff, whether it's a one person team or a thousand, you're not running a weekly structured meeting, uh, you're missing out. Um, now, meetings for meeting's sake are the death of me. If you call me for a meeting that really doesn't add value and, and, and that everyone is excited and interested to be part of, then it's a, it's a waste of time. But a structured meeting that runs on time, start to finish, everyone's in attendance every time, no exception unless you're PTO or health, um, and is intended, a majority of it is intended to uncover specific issues that popped up across the organization over the last seven days. And by the end of the meeting, you've reviewed each one and created an assignment or a to-do for someone specific in the organization to go and handle and solve that particular issue, or you have a place to put it for long-term concerns, long-term issues down the road, that is an effective meeting. Why? Because there's no way to avoid issues that pop up. They always happen. They still happen to today. But how most business owners will deal with those issues real-time, personally. Tell me what's wrong. Okay, someone walks in there. What's going on? How can I help? Okay, great. Okay, handle this. Multitask to the ninth degree, right? If you can imagine a world where an issue pops up and no one talks about it, unless it's urgent and something needs to be done immediately, which happens, most issues are not that case. They're process breakdowns, problems that can be resolved down the road. There's a place to put it. You write that issue down. Whoever had it, they put it write down what the issue is. And then once a week, we all get together. We're smarter together anyways. We review it. We come up with the best solve, meaning who should be handling this? Who should go solve this? Is it a new process we need to implement or write? Is it, a new, is it an underwriter we need to contact? Is it a decision that someone has to be made or a person needs to be called, right? So that's the, in, the main intent of a weekly structured meeting is to control the chaos on your terms. Okay, a couple of questions here because you've got my mind running. So, uh, first of all, was this a mandatory meeting for all staff or just particular staff members, first of all? It started mandatory for everyone because we were at the time, I think we only had 10 people. As we grew and we had different departments and department heads, each department head ran its own weekly meeting structured identically to the other departments. And then the leadership team would have a, a separate one once a week. All same exact structure, but the issue list 
that each department had was completely specific to that department's operations. Okay, and then did y'all have, and I don't know how far back this goes, if they had this, did y'all have a Google Doc or like some shared drive that you put these issues on throughout the week? Yep, yep. It was an Excel doc within a Google, uh, you know, space. So we just had, at the time it wasn't even a Google doc, but it was shareable through our OneDrive. And yeah, anyone could jump in there real time, add it on. Uh, That's where we listed, you know, all of our highlights, all of our issues, all of our assignments that were created from the last week's issues. People would cross that out throughout the week when they got it done. Uh, Our scorecard would be on there. So every single person in the agency had a number that they were focused on weekly, dependent specific to their job description and what they were really tasked to do. And so this not only allowed us to control issue resolution on our terms, but it, it allowed us to decide as a group, like what's most important that we do at what time, what needs to be focused on this quarter versus next quarter versus, you know, annually, what are our annual goals? Everyone gets everyone on the same page. So people feel like we're unified there. It began to transition the autonomy, authority, decision-making power from two guys that probably didn't make good decisions for most of the time to a group of people, (laughs) to a group of people whose lives depended on it. And that they literally live their own decisions. Who wants to be in a business where they're just told what to do and how to do it. If they can be empowered through a weekly engaged discussion to come up with the best solves. And then ultimately they're the ones that go and implement those changes. That's a business you don't have to be running. And that's a business with employees that are extremely high job satisfaction, effective as, as, as all hell. And, uh, and that's an environment that we slowly move towards. But a lot of agency owners are listening to you say this and say, oh, the whole meeting is just going to be my CSRs bitching and moaning about this agent or this client or this thing or this process that you put in, they didn't want to do. Did it become a lot of that or did you have certain things in place to prevent that? And am I right on that? And you, you know, that did happen. You're, you're 100% accurate. And it wasn't, it wasn't specific to a role where people would share that feedback. It was common, you know, across the, across, across the board. Two things though. Uh, one, it required education and commitment to reminding people why we were here and the importance of this meeting and why, what we're trying to accomplish out of it. And, and that, that took time. I mean, people need to hear things seven, eight, 10 times before it really sits in. Um, the, second, the second piece of it is it, that, and this comes back to the leadership and management skill, and, and this is refined over time. And, you know, when you're young in your career, you know, not just age, but tenure, sometimes you feel like it's your way or the highway and you need to kind of assert your authority that way over people, tell people to, you know, be this way or stop doing that. We really realized that that that's like a bandaid to a short-term issue in order for us to solve really behavioral change macro level for the agency. We needed in real time to pleasantly interrupt and, and ask what is the issue that you ran into specifically and what, do you, what kind of help do you need from us to solve it? And that changed the conversation from just bitching, moaning, complaining to a really, like, it, it forced people to sit back and literally take 10, 15 seconds to, to gather their thoughts, to succinctly share what the issue was that they ran into, not get into the emotional piece of it, and how, most importantly, we can help them. Because that would, that would force them to look at it from a solution-based mindset. And if they're not naturally that way, this is a great way to educate them to become more solution-based focused people. Yeah, it, it sounds like uh, that was a, a solid way of doing it. And a lot of you know agency owners out there that I talk to and consult with, as you do, uh, are probably hesitant to do what you just talked about, have those weekly meetings because of that. And the other the other question I would have is, as you're empowering people and as you're, you have a solution-minded meeting, did you find that over time it caused a lot of your staff to raise their hand to say, I'll solve that, or I've got an idea, or this is what we did last week that happened, or I had the same issue last month that came up about Joe Bob that didn't want to pay his premium on time, or this carrier didn't do this, or whatever the issue may have been. Yeah, it very much did. Over time, people became a little bit more, uh, they looked forward to the meeting because they know the meeting was intended to get stuff done and come up with solves for their own issues. The, the, the secret though, isn't, isn't to take the assignment yourself. I think this is where we failed early on. Um, but 
the, the key is typically if someone's bringing up the issue, they're probably the best person to go solve it. They just don't know they have the authority or what to do next. And so whoever really brought up the issue would tend, not always, but tend to be the person who would then have the assignment that for that next week. Because don't, don't think for one second this meeting was going to go on for nine hours to solve all the issues and actually go solve them, like call underwriters. And all. This was just about identifying what the core problem was and figuring out who was the best to go solve it. And then we wrote, we removed it from the issue section and we added as an assignment or to-do for that person. And typically it was the, the person that brought it up. So these were 30 minutes, one hour long, 15 minutes. What are we looking at? They are started they like as, for 15? They started yeah. as 90 minutes, um, which sounds like a long time. Yeah, it does. But I'll say, <laughs> what I'll say though, is it eliminated a lot of side calls, conversations, meetings throughout the week. And over the course of a few months, it fully eliminated interruptions throughout the week. So we got all of us collectively got hours and hours and hours back of typical interruptions, side conversations, issue discussion, and like, what should I do here? Can you get involved here? Yada, yada. So it uh, 90 minutes so was, was condemned. That, that was a you're more efficient, you're more productive now. Everyone, not just you, not just your partner, but everyone's more productive. Everyone's more efficient. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's what it sounds like to me. Far more, far more. Yeah, 90 so minutes. You went, yeah. Yeah, over time, we were able to shrink that down. We went from 90 minutes to, six, to 75 to 60 to 45. And it, only because we got more efficient, because a lot of people would solve their own issues throughout the week, you know, just on their own because they knew how to do it. Um, or just because we, we started writing down processes and we started actually implementing better processes because of this discussion. And we um, less issues rose up throughout the week because we'd already solved them in the past. And so things, things you know, progressively got better, but it took the full two, two and a half years for us to really master the system. And again, it comes back to commitment to the system uh, less of, it's just like, a, you know, we looked at it as the same way people talk about going on diets. Like if we, had, if we had tried to impart change at the agency level, you know, with the, you know, by shredding carbs and just eating only protein for three months, uh, we wouldn't have had the same results long-term. We would have just gotten, you know, back on carbs even harder three months later. It, it's more of a lifestyle change that affects long-term diet, nutrition, and health, Right. And it's the same thing with the business. Like we needed to set up a system that we would commit to for life, you know, and that's, that's, that's why the, the backbone of the business system is the weekly structured meeting and how you run it. Um, and there's a lot of meeting structures that work. I mean, it's, this isn't the only, only one, but if, if you can get everyone uh, highlighted, you know, there's a highlight section, there's a, an opportunity for you to share uh, personal bests and, and professional bests. There's an opportunity to talk about your scorecard, create accountability around what you did the past week. And then you leave a lot of time to actually resolve issues. And not all issues could be resolved that, that coming week. We had, to, we had to have a component of the, of the spreadsheet that was there for long-term issues we would resolve down the road because it was just too big of a hairy, audacious challenge. No. You had talked about production, you know, as maybe being a part of this meeting, maybe it wasn't. But during this meeting, how transparent were you on that? Did you have people's numbers on the board? How many did they close? How many did they called on? How, how transparent were you in that? Because I think that's key right now to this day. There's still agencies not as transparent as I think that they should be. Fully transparent. We had our agency revenue goals as our annual goals on the top of the spreadsheet. We had retention goals for the service department. We had production goals for the sales department. We had lead generation goals and number for the business development department uh, and marketing, specifically on the top of the page for annual goals. And then on a weekly basis, yes, policies sold. We had proposals sent. We had quotes completed. We had calls made. We had tasks completed. Depending on the role that you held in the agency, you had a couple functions that were more important than others, not not that anything was unimportant, but there were a few components that were ultimately more important than others. And those we tracked every single week. We got better at it, improved our data over time and gave us a lot more uh, inside knowledge of what the business was looking like week, week to week. So if we, in the month of February, really slowed production, leads kind of dropped down, we could track that, look year over year how we did last February and realize, wow, we're down 15%. We got to make a pivot. 
let's issue this out and make sure we come up with a good solve so that we can pivot quickly. In the, before we implemented the system, we could go six months without even realizing what, that, what those numbers looked like and that we were on a downward trajectory and we needed to devote more energy towards specific partners, et cetera. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that as you were smaller and as you were developing this, that had to be a little more easier to be nimble or do you find that even as you grew, you could still transform and still real time make those changes? Did it matter the size of the agency? Great question. I wish we had done this earlier, which I guess everyone says about everything, <laughs> everything that they were you know, grateful for. Uh, it would have been easier to implement this as three or four people um, and then grow with it so that new people would come into the system, understand you know, what core values meant to the agency and how we use them, what the scorecard looked like and why it was important, how to actually resolve issues week to week, who had quarterly sprints, meaning focus goals to that quarter and why they were important, how it tied into the agency's objectives for the year. All that stuff would have been a lot easier to onboard new employees with as part of their training. Um, we started probably anywhere between 10 and 12 employees. And that, that it took a lot of retraining and education and time in order to um, get everyone on the same page. But ultimately, once that was done, it was much, it's very easy to grow with the same system uh, and plug people in uh, where they really quickly understood, you know, like we didn't have a training plan when we had 10 people. The training plan consists of the person starting, hopefully having the right, the right type of experience ahead of time. And hope, hopefully they would bring up their issues to us and we could help solve them in real time. Um, a horrible, horrible way to grow. But, you know, once we, we implemented the system, we quickly realized we don't, it was an issue. We don't have a training plan. We need a map, a training timeline, guidelines. Who would, be, who would be training these people? What categories and topics do they need to learn at what frequency, yada, yada. And so all that was, you know, there, I think I mapped out 160 issues that insurance agencies, and it's not just insurance, any business, 160 potential sure. issues that a business can have on any given day. I wrote these out from years of, of looking at hundreds, 160 that any, anyone going to pop up. You're going to see a bunch of them. I'm going to see a bunch of them. And so if you don't have a way to control that chaos and put it on your terms, solve those on your terms, you're always running around unsure and, and scared of the next fire that's going to hit. I like that. I just wrote that down. Controlled chaos uh, or control the chaos. But I'm imagining, you know, as we, you know, right now, I'm looking at the clock, I'm like, holy smokes, but uh, that helped you develop those processes as you went along. Am I right? Uh, yes. Things, you said hundreds of things that came up and you were able to put that down uh, and not only help your agency, but start to consult with other agencies, correct? Yes. And, yes. Because it takes a long time well, to d develop written processes that are structured in a way that people follow them and they're, and they're accountable to them because they, they, they're in the best interest of everyone. And then to store them somewhere that gets actually revised and edited as you grow, um, it takes a long time and that could take a year plus. And, and then you, you continually edit as you go. So the first step is having a system in which you're able to uh, be self-aware enough that you need processes written down in structured format. And then you can break them out, marketing, biz dev, sales, service, processing, ops, et cetera, et cetera. And over time, build those out and make sure the right people are designing them and under the same structure. And so, yeah, and then I'll, and when, we, when we had a catalog of thousands of processes or hundreds of processes, you know, it was easier for the team, but it was also really easy for us to kind of talk to other agencies. And so whether you're an agency in Arkansas, which is a shout out to 37% of my audience or an agency in New England or in California or wherever, you could probably identify a problem and help them to solve that problem, which again, as earlier in your story, led to Babylon and consulting and working with other agencies. Um, I'd say, know, Heath, one thing on that, because it's interesting. I, yeah. We got dozens of calls a week for a couple of years because we were, you know, because of our vlog, because of social media, a couple of magazines, we were speaking across the country. And every call was different in the questions that agencies had. It could be producers, service reps, it could be agency owners. Most of them were agency owners. Every question was different, the topic, but they were all issues. And after a long time, we realized all we were doing was solving their one particular issue. We were just handing them a fish. We needed to create a way for us to train them how to fish. And 
get to the core root problem because they're just going to continue to have issues that pop up and not knowing how to, not having a system to solve those on your own terms was the core problem. The issues that are popping up, whether it's lead generation or service management or team core value, you know, culture, whatever it might be, are all like consequences of not knowing how to solve your own problems. And we didn't know how to solve any problems until we were educated and we, you know, implemented a system. That's how we started Babylon and the consulting side, which, and I think it's important to mention, we do not do any more. It was an awesome passion project and it was super fulfilling. We had 65 episodes on our own podcast, the Babylon podcast. We enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, but it was mainly because we were decided that we wanted to partner with the Hill Group. They acquired us and it was way too much to try to focus on trying to consult businesses while also really just trying to drive top line revenue and profit and, and continue to run leadership roles within Hill. Okay. So you know, it's a good transition. Uh, it's almost like, you know, we could have scripted that out. It's a great help. on. Tra- you had a podcast before I could tell. Okay, so transitioning to, you, you sold the agency to Hild. Talk to me what that's like from building this baby, you know, that you and your partner had. That, first of all, is, is you know, as brief as you can, uh, how, how difficult was that for you to sell that off, your baby? And then I guess part two of that would be, Talk to me, talk to the audience about, you know, post-sale, you know, what, what that's about, because there's agencies listening to this that have either been through that or thinking about that or, hell, on the other side of that, that are buying agencies. So, you know, I'm going to give you three or four questions all in one. Go. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. That's that's where I excel. Thanks, Heath. Uh, I'll preface it by saying we had no intention of selling. It was not part of the plan. We went into 2019 with zero interest in selling. Why? Because we looked at selling the same way a lot of agencies look at selling, especially as 36-year-olds. Why would we ever stop? Hang up the shoes, stirrups, whatever, right off in the sunset. It's not something we were interested in. So, but we had never gotten the company valued. So we did not know what the business was worth. We'd put our blood, sweat, tears for almost a decade. And we had no idea what our value was, which our advisors said was silly. So we decided to, we hired brokers, we went out and got a professional valuation. Um, you know, we shared with them initially that uh, we had major concerns of selling. We did not want to just be middle managers for some, you know, larger entity and lose our people, our process, our control, our autonomy, our entrepreneurial spirit was really important. We also didn't want to stop. We wanted to level up and grow and we needed goals, things to strive for. That was really what motivated us to be entrepreneurs in the first place. And so we were very apprehensive, even after they told us what we th- they thought our market value was worth, which was a lot more than what we, in- that we thought we were worth, which at least piqued our interest. Um, we still were like, we wouldn't sell for any price if we lost all of these things that matter to us, right? Because we still, we still want to work. I don't care. You know, money is just you know, a nice resource, but ultimately I want to be able to continue to drive forward. Um, we went through the process of talking to 13 buyers and we realized that they were all different. And some immediately we canceled as like, we're not going to have another conversation because you would change too much about what makes us special to work here and, and who we are and our people um, and our process for it to be worth it to us. And we don't want that to happen to our people. Some, yep, go ahead. So, so 13. So you went from not wanting to sell at all to 13. Now, did those 13 approach you or did you put it out there and look for 13? How did that 13, if you don't mind, a side detour for a second? No, 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 no. Yeah, I might have skipped over that. I, uh, we would have been lost if we went direct to the buyer's pool and started the process. One, we wouldn't have known what to do because we'd never gone through the process before. And two, if we actually moved forward and sold, we probably would have picked the wrong partner for a lot less money. So we interviewed, our first round was interviewing investment bankers that specialize in the insurance space because we needed to know what we didn't know. And that's what they knew. So we hired brokers and they were able to navigate and shepherd us throughout the process, answer the questions that were most important, give us the feedback, be our due diligence backers. You know, they, they did everything for us really to kind of shepherd us along the way. And we would have. So they found the 13. Yes. They engaged and, okay. and, and they connected. And so we use them as our sounding board throughout the process. And they were able to answer tons of questions, give us a lot of feedback and recommendations. Uh, the most of the buyers were not right for us for a variety of reasons. But what we did realize ultimately after 
six to eight months of these due diligence meetings and discussions is there were a few buyers that were, and they're the ones that didn't want to come in and change things, you know, significantly. Change your management system, sure. Change your phone system, sure. Your accounting features, sure. IT firm, sure. Like none of that stuff mattered. What mattered was our people, our culture, and our process. Don't touch that. And if there were, if there were three or four buyers, especially private equity-backed companies, who said, we're great at finance, we're great at M&A, internal arbitrage is our game. We don't really want to get involved in your insurance space, but we do know that what you do is special. So we would love to have you on, t- on the team. We saw that as a great opportunity because we could con- continue to run the business really independently and, and make decisions for our team and for our clients, but also leverage a massive multi-billion dollar backed private equity firm that had the finance backing, the IT backing, the, the HR backing, you know, and paid all time multiples that, you know, uh, we, we didn't want, and this is important to note, we didn't want to miss, um, you know, and so we decided there's no perfect time, but uh, this certainly was not a bad time and we were able to level up and uh, transact. So our life to answer your last piece of that question post-sale is, I have to say, almost identical to the life prior. Um, we still have goals we have to meet. There are carrots, of course, there are you know, incentives built into everything, uh, but we also have a lot of control over our people, our, com- our company culture, our processes, our weekly meetings. No one else is involved but us. We have one, mo- one monthly meeting call a week with the leaders at Hilb to talk about accounting and sales, and that's about it. And so, and this may not happen for everybody, but post-sale, if you want to make a change in the agency or pivot one way or the other, you can still do that. You still have some of that control, you and your partner. Yes, you have to agree to a budget going forward, which I know it sounds crazy, but you probably should do that, right? Internally, you know, we never really had that. It's like, oh, we had more money at the end of the year, bonuses. We had more money at the beginning of the year, more marketing dollars, right? So we do have to agree to a budget with, with the corporate team, which is important. Uh, we have to stick to that budget, which means you can make decisions laterally left and right as much as you want. You can pivot as much as you want. You want to go after something different, niche different, whatever, manage different, structure something different, all up to you. But if you wanted to spend a $10,000 bobblehead order and you didn't build that in the budget the December prior, you weren't going to do that, which is the only major change, which is frankly, financially, a very healthy one. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, and so for those that are listening thinking, if I sell my baby to some large conglomerate or some big group, I'm going to lose, you know, my say, or I'm going to lose my identity, or I'm not going to be able to continue to move on as, you know, Matt Namoli or whoever it may be. But you're saying, don't be afraid of that. Uh, that that's not the case. Uh, yeah. And I would emphasize that I am not recommending it. I think that I'm not, I'm not discouraging against it. I'm also not recommending. I'm just sharing our experience. Our journey is, is specific to us. Okay. And so I think a lot of agency owners are very fearful and apprehensive for the future, the unknowns, and the thought of selling the identity piece of it, but also the finance piece, the concern that they might miss out on something else. That's a lot. Of, there's just a lot of anxiety around that topic. And the more you can educate yourself on, on what that process looks like, the type of buyers that are out there, the deal structures. I could spend two hours on deal structures and how we navigated that world, figuring out not just what you're worth, but what could you make post-sale if you hit specific benchmarks, the equity and shareholder value that you could assume like we did with the mothership, as you put it, right? It's not just, I mean, I went from a 50% owner of a $5 million revenue shop to 1% over a, over a $250 million revenue shop. So I still have equity and shareholder and ownership value. Now, all of that stuff, if the more you educate yourself on that stuff, the more equipped and empowered you'll feel, and you'll know if it's right for you or not. I've helped a dozen or more agency owners get valued over the last year because they've said, I don't even know what I'm valued. I don't know what my worth is. I don't know where do I even start. And having those conversations have opened up their eyes to, you know, what they might be worth, what they think they could be worth, the right partners for them, the deal structures that could be advantageous given their goals. Um, but most, most, not some, not some, but most, it's not the right time. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't educate yourself. Like for us, we agreed we could get to the 11th hour. And if there was one thing that didn't feel right or, or, or be right, we were going to kill the deal and say, we're not selling. 
And I think that's a healthy way to go into the process. Educate, inform, get evaluation, understand all the players, the deal structures out there, but know that you can go through the entire process and say, no, I'm not ready at the very end. Um, and I think that's a healthy way to look at it. As a business owner, not just an insurance agency, but as a small business owner, I think it's just a really good thing to go through. Yeah. And so it sounds like whether you're, you know, small agency owner, large agency owner in Arizona, Arkansas, or Missouri, or New England, you should at least get your agency evaluated. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yes. And yes. so uh, at least know and educate yourself on where you're at and you know, you may be surprised one way or the other, but uh, it'd be a good tool and a good exercise to go through as an agency principal. And I have a lot of agency owner friends that I've met over the years that, you know, they have a good buddy or that's in that business and they get evaluation or they, they have a, a partner or a client that they insured who can do that for them. But for those that don't and don't even know where to start, like you reach out to me and I'm happy to help. I'm happy to be play connector because I interviewed them all and you can get valuations for free. You don't have to spend $10,000. Like a lot of people tell you, you can do it for free and you can get a market analysis, a pro forma built out which two years ago, I didn't know what a pro forma was. So if you don't know what a pro forma is, don't feel bad. Um, but all that stuff can be done. And I want anyone listening to feel like you can use me as a resource. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, okay. So, you know, wrapping up here, what, uh, what have I missed? Okay. We've talked about a lot of things here, but what, what are you doing? You know, obviously working in the agency still, you still got a lot going on there, but is there anything that you're working on right now that you could share with us? Anything that you're doing right now? I know you're working with some tech people, correct? Yeah. In general, I'm, I'm, I love, uh, I love being busy in, in, in a lot of different areas. Uh, my main focus is leading and managing with Zach at GNN. You know, we're really focused on our, on our forward momentum, our growth, our traction. We have a ton of initiatives that are laid out for the year. Um, I, I've unofficially become an advisor and mentor for a lot of agency owners over the years, um, for technology companies that serve our space. I really believe that the right technology becomes major enablers for our space and are a great, great opportunity for the independent channel to um, hedge against disruption using the right partners. And so I believe in that space. I've become a, a big proponent and advisor for the right type of companies. Um, but I, I'm also, and again, we're not consulting anymore officially, but people have questions, they can always reach out to me. Um, I've helped a lot of agencies sell their business over the last year. Um, it's not something that it starts the conversation with, but a lot of people do get, you know, go down that process, get valued and say like, what do I do next? And I've been the, kind of their shepherd or unofficial sort of mentor throughout that process. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's, that kind of covers it. I'm acting as a mentor advisor for a lot of agencies in, in a variety of ways, uh, involved in a lot of technology companies as advisors unofficially and, um, you know, continuing to push ahead with GNN and, and what our, our initiatives are this year. So, okay, my last official question uh, would be, and I hear this a lot, and I get a lot of emails every week from, from agency owners or principals or producers or CSRs that say, there's so much tech out there. I don't even know where to start. I bought these seven things and it didn't work. I bought these, they didn't work. Any advice, any last thing you could say to them as a, a tech vendor advisor, so to speak? Yeah. What could you tell them? What could you tell them? Well, we've made a lot of mistakes in that in that space. Uh, I can tell you, spent thousands and thousands of dollars on things we never used. <laughs> so I, I can speak from experience. Um, a couple things on that. I'd say one, I would only invest in technology if if it truly replaces something you're already doing manually. I think that the technology that's out there that sounds sexy and interesting, um, but that you're not doing right now, it's like a completely different outside the box thing, is, isn't where you should start. You know, you should start by replacing things you're doing manually with technology that really works. I'd say that additionally, if you are not using a sales pipeline CRM of sorts, to manage your pipeline, whether you're selling or you're, you know, your staff is selling or whatever, that's a really good, simple place to start. I think you'll see a much better ROI on that type of implementation than you know, a data analytics uh, company, which might be a little bit further down the line of need, um, you know, totem pole wise. Uh, I also think that if you have too much on your tech stack and you're not experienced using all those digital options and, you know, and, and, and vendors, 
it's going to it's going to have a negative return and you're you're going to see more stress and anxiety than less so i think simplicity with your tech stack understanding that there's only a few things we really really should implement on a, at a time um, get really good at those replace what we're doing manually it's, it's the way to go um, we're huge proponents of virtual assistants. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of companies out there that that offer virtual assistant support. I think that that in tandem with technology implementation is a great combo because there's a lot of stuff that you cannot automate. There's a lot of stuff you should not automate at the agency level with current clients, existing prospecting, whatever. But VAs are an awesome addition to the team. Addition's a key word, not replacement of people. It's to elevate your people to focus on proactive customer-facing stuff. I couldn't agree more. And that's one of the other things that I hear a lot from this podcast, from consulting with agencies, is I'm not going to hire a VA because I don't want to replace my staff with a VA. And I love that you said it's enhancing. I've said it before. I love that you just reiterated so you make me sound smarter. <laughs> it's not replacing. It's enhancing your staff. And those CSRs that email me or those producers that email me and cuss me for using the word VA, again, it's enhancing, not replacing. So thank yeah. you for reiterating and helping the mayor out on that one. I'll tell you, so, our, uh, the people who love our VAs the most are our team. We, we don't know what oh, we would yeah. do without our VAs because they they remove a lot of stuff that are highly skilled, you know, high paid, experienced and licensed staff should not be doing it's just allowed them to focus on more of the important stuff for the customer facing stuff that's reactive and super, uh, I'm sorry, proactive and super time sensitive. Bro, you're exactly right. Uh, okay, so uh, I could sit here and talk to you forever, that beautiful face and that beard and that headset <laughs> of yours. Look like we feel like video gamers here. Like we're, like, I know. We, we, there's no guys, way we'd but, make money in video gaming, though, I'll tell you that. No, not at all. Not at all. But uh, I've enjoyed the hell out of it. We're going to have to do it again. But in wrapping up, what I do want to do, uh, we've talked about it a lot, but I do want to give you the floor. I want to give you the keys to the city for two or three minutes. Anything that you want to discuss at all. I don't care if you talk about, you know, your kids. I don't care if you talk about the agency. Even if we haven't discussed yet, I'm going to give you the floor. I'm going to hit mute and just let you go for a minute before we wrap up. I've got no asks from anyone. I think the only thing I'd say is if people have questions that feel free and, and of any nature, yeah, you can, it could be whatever people have questions on to feel free to engage with me. Um, it's, it's something I enjoy. I find a lot of fulfillment by helping others and seeing other people win. So that was my only ask is that I'm an open book and you guys reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to help in any, in any, in any component of the business, no matter what your role is um, on a personal level. Yes. I, I recently became a dad 15 months ago, I had Parker. My wife and I, Sadie, had Parker. We have a dog named Belle who's two, months, who's two years old, and we have another son on the way in April. So we had our, our hands full. But um, I have found that, the, the, that being a dad has been a wonderful, wonderful addition to you know my sort of joy and fulfillment in life. Uh, I have found that priorities have certainly shifted. My need for other people to know what I'm doing and to hear it, it's kind of ironic. I'm on the podcast, but then my need for, to be able to promote and broadcast what I'm doing, who I am, what I'm thinking has actually reduced significantly. My posts and shares on social have reduced significantly. Um, I've been focused much more on what matters most professionally, what matters most personally, which is my family and my team. Okay. So I said I had a last question, but okay. So first of all, I'll say I've got three kids, so I'm outnumbered at this point. So and it sounds perfect. Parker's going to, it's going to be what, two years apart, Parker and the, you know, the newborn. And you said son. Um, and then, okay, so you and Sadie have Parker, another one in the way. And then, a, a, did you say a Bernadoodle? Yeah, we actually, you know, funny. What Jason, Jason Cass and I have been buddies for a while. And uh, the one thing we yeah, share. My boy. Yeah, one thing we share, we should probably share more than this, but we both have a Bernadoodle, which is a Bernie's man. What is dog. a Bernadoodle? A Bernie, it's a Bernice Mountain Dog and Poodle mix. Uh, awesome, awesome breed. Uh, does not shed. Hypoallergenic. Super good with kids. Super smart. So her name is Belle. We love her. She's awesome. She got me in trouble yesterday on a walk because she pooped in a neighbor's yard. We're brand new to this neighborhood. And she pooped in a neighbor's yard and I didn't see it. Uh, I was talking to somebody else. And so she she got me uh, in, a, yeah, in a rough spot it's for another podcast. Uh, but... 
Uh, we love her. And uh, we having our second boy, yeah, in April. So we're going to have two kid, two boys 18 months apart. And uh, That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. That's a good, that's a good, like, mine are about, mine are stair step about every two and a half to three years. So it works out well. But another one, you'll be outnumbered, bro. Then you're in a different ball game. My wife and I are outnumbered with three. Plus, we have two cats and a dog. So we are way outnumbered. <laughs> that being said, bro, talk to me. Tell me, my audience, how they can get a hold of you. We'll talk about dogs and cats and stuff off air. But tell me how they can find you uh, if they yeah. do want to reach out to you. I would say whatever is easiest for them using whatever platform is, is, is the easiest way. I mean, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn under Matt Namoli. I'm, I'm on Instagram under M Namoli. My last name's N-A-I-M-O-L-I. Not the easiest. Uh, it's spelled wrong on every trophy and medal I ever received growing up. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, DM me on Instagram, send me a message on Facebook, shoot me a message on LinkedIn. You can find me on my web, on our website and shoot me an email, or you can just, you could put my phone number in your show notes and anyone can always text me too. I feel like I live on voice to text messages nowadays. It's such an efficient way of communicating. Truly is. Bro, thanks for coming to visit Insurance Town. I appreciate you. The audience appreciates you. We are going to do this again. Thank you so much, brother. I, I Man, it's so hard to do what you do and you do it really well. Uh, I, I think your, your audience definitely appreciates, understands what I'm talking about. Um, so thank you for having me on. But more importantly, thanks for doing this and facilitating this because this conversation wouldn't be a conversation if it wasn't for you and the work you put in. So appreciate it. Bro, thanks for checks in the mail. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you guys for hanging out with me in Insurance Town today. Matt and I had such a good time. I really hope that the content that we brought made you a better insurance professional. Guys, I got to tell you, today's show was edited and produced by my man Ryan over at Ready Set Podcast. If you have an idea for your own show or you've been thinking, man, Heat's good at this, I could do it better. That's cool. Call Ryan. Do it. Become your own podcast host, become your own show, become your own brand, do your own thing. Just call Ryan to do it. Get readysetpodcast.com or you can find him on Facebook. You can find him on LinkedIn. You can find him anywhere that you go on social media. He's everywhere. Ready, set, podcast, turning your brilliant ideas into reality. Thanks again, guys. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week.